Hello and welcome to Jure Radio. My name is Jesse Gutman and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. Welcome back, loyal Jured listeners. Maybe it's been a while, maybe it's been a continuous journey, or maybe this is your first time tuning in. Either way, you're very welcome, and we're happy to have you. Today, we have a very interesting amalgam of thoughts. It is a roundtable discussion which forms the plenary of the Law Union Conference in May 2019. And you'll hear a little bit about some ideas. Great discussion. And if you do permit me, I think I can say assuredly we have a star-studded cast of people this week discussing a very important subject, rule of law. We're calling it Revisiting the Rule of Law because you'll see our panelists have varying perspectives about whether it exists at all, really. You'll hear from Professor Pam Palmiter. You'll hear from Hadate Nazami. You'll hear from Howard Morton, Saran Gebrselassie, as well as the moderator, who's really a participant, Angela Chiasson. If you want more information about these panelists, please check out the Jured website, juredfoundation.wordpress.com. There'll be links provided. So fasten your seatbelts, listen up, and if you have comments, you can also leave them on the anchor.fm Jured website, and we can make it a full discussion. Too bad this didn't come out in time for your final papers, young law students, but you shall still have access to this discussion for posterity and personal edification. With that, let's hear from our panelists. We've had so many great discussions today, and I've been really thrilled to be a part of some of them. We've talked a lot about law, we've talked a lot about government, we've talked a lot about social justice and what that means. And so the idea of the rule of law really encompasses all of that. We generally think of it as a really good thing because it shows that nobody is above the law, including governments and the people who make them. On the other hand, the rule of law can be deeply problematic because law and the legal system in this country is based on colonialism, it's based on white supremacy, and it's based on misogyny. So how can we reconcile these two things of rule of law being something that we're aspiring to as advocates for justice and also working within that system? Pam, do you mind telling us a bit about your conception of the rule of law and how it influences your work? Uh, I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation on unceded Mi'kmaq territory, and it's an honor to have the privilege to be here on the territory of Mississaugas of New Credit and all those of which they shared uh, with it. And uh, a special thank you to the professionals who do the subtitles so that we can all access this information. Here's how I see Canada's rule of law. It could also be called Canada's war cry. And every time a Native person hears a press release or a politician talk about an issue first and foremost as this is us following the rule of law, it's usually a harbinger to the RCMP, the military or some other police force going to violently arrest us, invade our territories or stop us from doing what we're doing. It's an ironic war cry to have because when they do this, they're actually violating their own laws when they invade our territories and breach our rights. So the rule of law really should be called the law of rulers. And those rulers were primarily colonizers who didn't have very good intentions for us. And while Canadians have come to see many of those problems, many of the government and law enforcement institutions still consider themselves to be rulers and and consider themselves to have the power supported by the so-called rule of law to actually act outside of the law. And I mean, you'll have countless incidences of police officers and politicians 
who you know are found to be in contempt or breaking laws, and there's no real consequence for that, except they might not get elected. But the people who suffer the greatest consequences for breaches of just even Canada's laws, never mind Indigenous people's laws, are in fact racialized people, Indigenous people, and uh, oftentimes women. And so to me, the rule of law, this theory that no decisions will be made by arbitrarily by people in power or by governments and that everybody will be treated fairly is literally the opposite of what has happened in colonies. I could easily be talking about the United States as well. It simply has worked in the reverse and we've actually had to fight the rule of law all the way to get them to live up to their own laws and legal principles. Every single human right, every single treaty right, every single Aboriginal right did not come without a standoff, a protest, a fight. And in fact, in this country, the only way for Native people to continue on as Native people is to be criminally Indigenous. And what I mean by that is to do the exact opposite of what the rule of law professes, that everybody is bound to the same law. Because just because something is the law, it doesn't mean it's legal. It used to be so-called legal to scalp Mi'kmaq people. But is that following the rule of law because you created a law to create a gross human rights violation that even internationally would be recognized as illegal? It used to be legal to forcibly sterilize Indigenous peoples. Do they stand back and say, well, just following the rule of law, we, you know, we're allowed to do it. So the rule of law has to be so much more complex. We have to look at it so much more critically about how it has been used as a tool of colonization and oppression for exploitation and extraction. And that's essentially, it all comes down to exploitation of human beings, exploitation of the environment and the extractive industry and, and how it's about making money. So that's my quick and dirty on the rule of law. Sorry, I don't have any good points for it. Pam, has anybody told you that you have really got to learn to form a opinion? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really love this idea of the rules being made by the rulers to justify their own crimes. And I think that that's going to be really essential to our conversation. So on that note, Howard, can you tell us a bit about your conception? I think I'll go a little further than Pam. As far as I'm concerned, since shortly after the Magna Carta, this conception of rule of law has been a giant hoax, <laughs> perpetuating to keep the poor in their place, the serfs in the forest, and the elitists in charge of everything. And over the last five years, particularly starting in the States, but now with Trudeau on the SNC, Radlin, and the uh, Wanzhou extradition, he's using it every day now, too. It, don't be fooled. It, it's meant to have us think that we're all equal before the law. That's a complete and utter myth. If you have no access to the law, which many Indigenous Persons of color, poverty-stricken people, marginalized people have no access whatsoever to the courts of the law. Then any suggestion that we live under a rule of law is nothing but nonsense. Just by way of example, uh, it, the rule of law often expresses a law. We're a country of laws, a lot of men, women too, but it's always been men. Remember this: the Holocaust, apartheid. Uh, the Winnipeg General Strike, the artistic woodwork strike, which actually was the start of the Law Union of Ontario shortly after it. Paul Copeland and, and Bob Kellerman, many of them were arrested for breaking the law during that strike. There was also a strike at Textpack, which they also picketed act and, and became. And remember, the whole, for those of you in labor law, the whole restraint of trade argument that prevented workers from organizing was a law. And when unions tried to organize, they were charged with restraint of trade because, of course, it's a restraint of trade to try and pay people for what their labor is. I don't want to take a lot of time. I have some things to say later, but I got, but I, I got to leave you this quote from Anatole France, 
which is, he, he was a French poet back in the 1860s and 70s. And here's what he said about is the rule of law. The law in all its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor from sleeping under bridges, from begging in the streets, and from stealing bread. So you can see he said it far better than I do. It's a giant hoax. Don't get fooled by it. It's time for direct action as opposed to consultations and this and that and back and forth. You know, direct action worked in the 60s. It worked somewhat in the, in the late 70s. It will work again if you get out of the streets and hit the bricks. I think law is so beautiful, really echoes and, and builds upon what Pam was saying. Thank you. I actually agree with absolutely everything that was said already. What, what the phrase that makes a lot more sense to me now than they used to in the past, the phrase that I've heard <laughs> often in my youth, the law is the conditions of existence of your class, and talking to, as you say, the rich people, that turned into obviously tools of oppression for everybody else. And that's how they rule. And that's exactly the same thing. But I wanted to, I am here because uh, Barbara Jackman wanted me to uh, speak a little bit about the case that we were involved in recently in the Supreme Court, and it's exactly on, on these issues. Because it's uh, on the standard of review in administrative law. Administrative law is obviously a massive regime that is set up uh, historically and progresses over the years with sophistication of the way societies are, are, are set up. The tension between the so-called rule of law and the supremacy of the parliament in terms of where to draw a line, and that's where the judicial review comes. And uh, the courts are supposed to supervise the decisions of the administrative tribunals, delegates or officers, etc., that really govern all of, all of our lives and everything that we do. And so, where do you, how much difference do these decision makers get when they make a decision? Let's say, on a, in, in my case, was on a, uh, taking away citizenship from someone who was born here. But it involves other decisions, for example, the, the, the deportation and uh, taking away the property of the Japanese uh, during the War Measures Act was an administrative decision. And so was uh, setting up uh, schools to forcefully assimilate uh, Native communities and, and their children. It really is the administrative law is what is the way by which we are being ruled. And so over the years, the, the, I think what I see myself having now worked on, on this case is that you can see over, over time with the change to the right, you see more deference given to these administrative decision makers. And some of them can really be goons in the hands of the minister. Really, I mean, the officer that made a decision on the speaker's case, you know, and uh, you could see racism coming through it. And that he was one of the stupid ones because then he exposed himself. But, you know, there's a lot of other ones that make decisions. You actually, uh, you know, they get away with all kinds of things. And that's because as long as their decision is reasonable, in other words, you read it, it makes sense. It doesn't matter what the result is. And that's okay. The court says, I don't have to intervene. And so the, the, the issue now is before the Supreme Court, and the issue is how much deference should administrative decision makers get? What is the role of the federal court in terms of whether or not they should intervene in their decisions? And the move now is to all the arguments, including the amici, was telling the court that now you have to have a presumptive. A, and a presumptive uh, rule of deference, you have to give deference in every case. So we have to go prove why in a particular case that the court should intervene. Otherwise, the decisions are presumed to be reasonable and legal. And so it's very scary in terms of what might come out of the court because uh, with the way it is now, at least we have some room to be in protecting some vulnerable people. I mean, I understand on a very structural, of course, we, we live on the uh, capitalist society that has obviously got all of us stuck in this situation and perpetual, perpetual. 
actually uh, oppression is almost impossible to get out of. But on individual letters and, uh, levels as lawyers, you know, we try our best to represent uh, vulnerable people, especially in my case, refugees. And refugee law is one area where the ideological nature of the standard of review becomes really apparent. Uh, you can't go to say to the Supreme Court, though you have to be careful, you can't draw the line in such a way where the decision maker will get away with everything because they will be ideological and then you get thrown out of the court. That's not that's not how they deal with these issues. But but the fact is the more right-wing the government becomes, uh, the more right-wing members or decision makers they appoint, the more horrible their decisions are and the impact of those decisions on people. So it's a, it's a means of control, and that's what the rule of law in this context is. It's a means of control uh, in terms of what the policies of the particular government of the day are. And we'll see what the Supreme Court says, but it is a very scary prospect. The first panelist of what we call Mark Swins. Thank you. Bonjour, je vais donner mes meilleures salutations à la communauté francophone. Soyez pacifiques de participer de notre budget dans chaque présentation comme ça. I'm delighted as well to my base. Uh, so, really, uh, we see me also. I, there's a community in now over, I think, 100 cities around the world that are also really engaged with the work that we do in Toronto and uh, at my firm. So, very proud of that. My biggest grievance with our justice system, I probably share with you. I've seen the role of money in our justice system so many times. Um, I think it's perhaps one of the biggest, like one of the darkest parts of our justice system. And our challenge is to succeed despite that. And so at our firm, which is start off in Weston, Mount Dennis, which is the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, one of my practice areas is uh, direct action and civil disobedience. And it's a very unique model, very dynamic, very rich uh, in terms of the work that comes out of the firm. I call it an ecosystem because I said it's, it's a sort of political incubator, a media incubator, and there's um, I have to work with a lot of different uh, stakeholders and people, not just in Toronto, but in other cities in our province. Here in Ontario, we don't have an NAACP. We have Black Lives Matter, which I love very much and have been involved in with for a long time. But we don't have the protections in, in this province for vulnerable communities, racialized communities, um, in the way that they do in a lot of states in the United States. And I found that our firm ended up Filling that gap, not intentionally, but uh, or not that that's what I set out to do, but that's what happened. So I've, I've just seen so many battles. Um, we've gone head to head with big labor, which is not a popular thing to do, but um, our labor giants from Lysina to USCW to a number of others have, there's been a, a number of battles with racialized members who've been, who can't get representation. So that's something you would have seen out of my firm a lot. There have been battles against the province of Ontario, the Ontario Public Service, hopefully you've heard of that, DSB, the RCMP, the Toronto Police, on and on and on. And because our defendants have so much money that they are sitting on, and the families that come to my office, when they come in, it's usually because no one wants to touch their case. And so somehow I don't know why I ended up agreeing um, in the beginning, but it usually works out. One of the reasons no one lost their case usually is because there's no possible way they can win. Like there is no path to victory on paper in terms of what the rule of law will say. So, for example, I have a you know a family, a single mom who was fired after 30 years of working for a corporate giant, no severance, none of the even most minimal protections. And I I told her I'm like you could have worked in Somalia and had more protections than in my province. It's just, I just use that as an example of the kinds of battles we take on. They're very, very difficult battles. They're the kinds of battles that typically, with most lawyers that will look at it, look at the smile and say, oh, I'm not going to hear this potential. Oh, you're going to lose. So we take losing situations, like no hope, 
situations and then turn them into success stories. And the way that's done is because we don't have a million dollars to go up against the, the profits, for example, we use different forms of currency, so social media, and again, direct action, militancy, civil disobedience, and and it's worked. It's worked so many times. I feel like you know that really inspired a lot of families and communities. Part of the challenge with that is that our industry is stuck in the ice ages. Our governing body does not understand it at all. None of the regimes that govern us understand it. They're like civil disobedience. What is that? But yeah, this is necessary. And um, and I really urge us all to really one of the saddest parts of the role of money in the justice system is that it's become so normalized and everything has become so bureaucratized. One of my practice areas is wrongful death, specializing in pediatric fatalities at the hands of our state. And you'll see some of those cases, I'm sure, in, uh, in the future. But um, when I go into court, I just, I am just blown away at how it's just a machine and just the normalization of it is to me the scariest part. And that's what we fight to to get rid of, like the cancer that it is in our justice system. So I'm really struck on the one hand by Pam and Howard really problematizing the idea of the rule of law because the emperor has no clothes. It is a facade, and even worse than being a facade, it's something that's actively used to harm our populations. But then, of course, Hadia and Saran go to court and they use the legal system to get good outcomes for their clients. So how do we resolve that tension as people who are both activists and lawyers? Does anybody want to tackle it? Pretty simple concept. I would argue the fact that she has to go to court to advocate for someone whose basic human rights are being denied shows that the rule of law, in fact, is not working. Because the rule of law isn't necessarily the law itself. It's that you know governments and people with power don't get to make arbitrary decisions. They don't get to be doing these things. And the kinds of things that the, the employers do or governments do to Native people or people that are forced into vulnerable situation shows that the rule of law isn't working. Governments aren't abiding by the law. And that, that client is one of, what, 100,000 that was just lucky enough to find a law firm to be able to advocate on their behalf. The rest of the impoverished community or racialized or indigenous communities won't have any of that because the system isn't set up to ensure that we have full, equal, equitable and sufficient access to defend ourselves. And, and so we just hear about isolated cases. And if, if you look at the Cindy Gladue case that just came out from the Supreme Court of Canada, you couldn't look at a, a worse case where the Supreme Court totally acknowledges that both the Crown, who was supposed to be representing Cindy in some capacity, and the trial court just continually referred to her. She's just a native prostitute, native prostitute, native prostitute. Yeah, let's let in all her past sexual history. Let's just take for gospel everything that the accused says and we'll go from there. And that's not enough for them. I mean, the dissent said that would infect the whole process, but not the majority. The majority is like, well, you know, it might hurt manslaughter, but it didn't really affect murder. And, and tell me that there's a jury out there who, if they have racial bias, they can compartmentalize like that. Well, we're racist here, but we're not racist there. And so this is something that even our or Canada's highest court struggles with. So I don't think the justice system actually advances the rule of law in a really constructive way for the majority of people. The difficulty with the concept is it's constantly used as an excuse to make us feel that we're all equal. Mm -hmm. That everybody, if you look at Dicey, Dicey, as I say, the notion of rule of law started just after the Magna Carta, the parliamentary democracy and all that stuff, but Dicey sort of crystallized it uh, over a century ago when he had three principles the second is that we are all equal before the law. Third is that human rights are best protected by the common law. And as you know, Britain to the state does not have a constitution or a charter of rights. But dealing with the second one, that we are all equal before the law. I think the time has come up 
because everybody's using this term on TV. Every politician yeah. uh, in Canada and the United States is using it. For us to stand up and say, do you really understand what the rule of law is? And do you really understand there is no rule of law in the sense of equality before the law in this country? How many people actually have access to the law? As I said earlier, going all the way back to the various strikes and apartheid and the Holocaust, these were all done under the law. That was the law. So the law was complied with and the rule of law is defined by Dicey. Let's say that's fine because we are a nation of laws and not of men. What I'm trying to do is to encourage members of the law union, anyone here, every time you hear that term, get over the queasiness in your stomach and, and, and fire back about what that term really means and how we do not have it in this country. You know, I'm so interested to hear your thoughts on this because you, especially this last Supreme Court of Canada case that you've done, your entire job is to hold the government to account. And you do it, and you do it really well. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Actually, in this, this particular issue has been a struggle from, for me from the beginning. I mean, I do have some really good mentors here, but uh, obviously, you know, I'm someone who believes in the fact that perhaps by participating in this whole charade, the courts and the courts is that way legitimizing the system as it is. I mean, I'm not going to be extreme to say we shouldn't do that. The way I look at it is that, is that if we're not careful, I think we fall into that trap. And I think we do fall into that trap. And what I've learned in the past few years is that I don't think any change happens because um, decisions we get from the courts or because the law of the late politicians draft these laws, unless, unless there's a movement behind it. It's important to be, it's, it's all right if you're a lawyer, but more importantly, I think for me, it's important to be an activist and acknowledge this and not fall into the trap that you are you are saving the world by being a lawyer and by being a human rights lawyer. And it's, uh, I, I've learned this, I mean, this Shinamai and Jill and Sadaway, people here who have actually practiced and lived most of their career doing both of these together. And, and so for me, I can function in both places, realizing that I understand that I will not give into the system the way it is. And so I will at the same time join a protest in front of the board uh, or help organize other protests. I mean, you saw a good example of this. Uh, in the context of security certificates where people's rights were being tarnished. I mean, this has nothing to do with the kinds of allegations or whatever proceedings that were in place. It's just the arbitrary nature by which they were acting against people. There was some degree of cruelty to it, but there was a big movement that realized this, that this was something that was actually very dangerous in terms of the precedent was setting. And so there, it was quite a big movement in organizing panels in universities going to protest. In fact, there were walks from here to Ottawa when the point when the case was scheduled to be heard. And these are the important things. This is what we as lawyers should be involved in while also going to court and, and doing what we can individually. You're talking about law and activism sort of as two spheres that don't really become a Venn diagram. And I was struck at reading an interview with Govita Bohr after she left the Supreme Court of Canada, and she said, well, one of the reasons that I'm leaving this justice system because it's not effective. And I think that civil society, if I want to make change, is where I need to be. Is that something you would agree with? Oh, well, and, and by you, I mean any of the panelists who would like to tackle this question? Well, I, I can only speak to the criminal law. And maybe it's because I'm getting older and older and older. But as far as I'm concerned, the criminal law, the criminal administration of justice has become totally redundant. We have no expertise in dealing with domestic abuse. We have no expertise in dealing with mental health issues. We have no expertise in dealing with drug issues. And on and on it goes. And yet, where do we put all these problems? 
instead of letting the professionals who do know about these things handle them, uh, like our buddy Ford's just cancelling of the talk centers, we send them into the criminal justice system where police officers and lawyers like me, who, you know, we really don't know much of anything to, to consider ourselves experts. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the criminal law is redundant and much of it has to be replaced by putting uh, mechanisms in with experts who know how to deal with these issues. Because most crimes come out of one of the three issues or maybe a fourth or fifth that I just mentioned. Anybody else want to tackle the question or should we move on? One thing, Howard, you're talking about issues of sexual violence, domestic assaults. One thing that we're really struggling with, I think, in the feminist community is whether or not responses to sexual violence, domestic assault, things of this nature can be appropriately dealt with by the criminal justice system, by the civil litigation system, whether more community response is needed. Is it a feminist act to put somebody in jail, right? Partial feminism. Is that something that we can even support? So I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on the justice system versus community accountability and community response. And how does that fit into the rule of law? I, I certainly prefer that, that approach with a whole bunch of issues, not just domestic assault. But when you deal with those issues in another venue, they have to be well-funded, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're not going to work. So I'm with you 100%. As long as you get the funding that the justice system currently wastes by processing people for months and months and then throwing some in jail and giving others a discharge, take some of that money and fund the community-based organizations that you're, you're speaking of. I would probably vote for an evolution. People are too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm interested in hearing you talk a bit about the rule of law in uh, First Nations as opposed to uh, Canada. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, of course, if you're going to talk about the rule of law, you really have to talk about the rule of laws because long before there was a Canada, we had our own sovereign nations with our own laws and our own practices and enforcement and ways of doing it. It really gets... Uh, I, it gets pan-aboriginalized as sentencing circles and all that stuff now, but that that... Like that's very far away from what actual native laws and practices were and accountability were or what consequences were for things. Um, and, and even now, uh, many, there's many laws that are written down, um, all different kinds of laws. You know, some have written down their traditional laws. Some have enacted laws under the Indian Act. Some have, you know, have self-governing laws. Some just have sovereignly asserted laws that they've written down. Many of them are not written down. But what Canadians don't know, because there's not enough written about it, is that so many of these laws are actually um, still practiced. It's just that it's not coming in a book and there's not a judge saying you will do this. So in some communities, it was always their tradition. If a man and woman break up and the woman um, has children, then the tradition has always been, well, the women and children get the house and the man has to go out and find another place. That's, that's not written down anywhere but it's still, as a matter of practice and tradition, carried out in some communities. We have to look at the ways in which that might not be compatible with Canada's laws and how Canada interprets the way family should be or shouldn't be. It's important to, to think about Indigenous laws and whether we, whether Canada could actually learn from some of the solutions that we have and ways of treating things. Because when there is a problem in many nations, and not all, because we're all diverse and all different, the first people that you are accountable are to your grandmothers or your kookums. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to a young person in some communities is that you have to sit around the family table and be accountable for something that you've done. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But then there's also other laws where you have to put your body in the way to protect land and water from extraction that'll hurt your people or from man camps that'll increase murder to missing indigenous women. Like these are our laws that we're living by. We don't have a choice because that's the way our law works and we have different ways of, of being accountable. And none of that gets taken into account. There's political lip service. There's even some legal lip service around, oh, you know, the common law incorporates some Aboriginal rights and things like that, but laws are powers. 
and sovereign nations have powers. We're not talking about rights under another system, and that's why the rights system isn't working. It works as a little bit of a shield, a little bit of a time delay, but ultimately, the person that's granting or recognizing the rights reserves all the power to infringe those rights. And that's, that's not respective of Indigenous law. And I think if we're going to measure how justice is working, we have to start not focusing on the law or the policy. For example, the criminal code, it's against the law to commit murder. Um, that law doesn't protect Native women. There's you know, an almost 99% degree of impunity for police officers, teachers, doctors, lawyers, human traffickers, gangsters, anyone to kill a Native woman. High degree of impunity. The bit about incremental change, important first steps, it can't happen overnight, we're making some progress. None of that equates with equality because there's no such thing as incremental equality. So what do we have to do? Pass another law? Like if our focus is on the law, then it's let's make it extra, extra murder if you murder a Native woman. That won't change anything. That whole system isn't working. And I think in, in Native communities, many of the ones I work with, we've been calling for, if there's a domestic abuse situation, why don't we have counselors? Why don't we have family members? Why don't we have a response team that isn't the police coming in, beating up the man and the woman, arresting them and going through that process and traumatizing the kids and they go in foster care, then they never go back to their parents and people end up in prison. And, that doesn't actually solve anything. It makes everything worse. And so I, I mean, we've always argued for a, a different response mm -hmm. to people problems, which are not, you know, it's different from what you consider to be criminal problems. And what do you think the main thing that Canadian law take away and learn from McNabb law? Oh, well, um, they could uh, focus on the humanity. So at least from a Mi'kmaq concept, everything is about the like the human being and the ecosystem that we're in, that we're not separate from it. You wouldn't necessarily talk about a human right in Mi'kmaq law. You, you would talk about the right of the territory. Today, people say, oh, I have a right to hunt. But in, in Mi'kmaq, it's about you may have the privilege of hunting, but it comes with a corresponding responsibility to make sure that the ecosystem in which that animal lives gets to continue on. We focus just on the individual resource, but not the ecosystem. So if you have a privilege to fish, you also have to protect that water and the downstream and the upstream and all the feeder streams and the sediment and the fish and the birds. Like all. So it's, it's more holistic. It, it can't be isolated into a silo, which doesn't take into account what's the outcome if you have a right to fish, great, we've recognized your right to fish, but now there's no more fish because you've overfished it. The outcome harmed <laughs> the environment, and because of that, now we can't hunt moose and, and so on and so forth, as opposed to just focusing on individual things, and that's a problem with the law. The law needs to be more holistic. I struggle with that a lot in my practice, where people come to me and say, I have a legal problem, which I can fix, but so do I. I mean, so what if it just means that their relationships are so fundamentally damaged. So what if it still means that violence is ongoing? So what if you still don't have a minimum wage that supports a living wage? Mm -hmm. So what if I fix your legal problem, but you still don't have any community support or counseling mm -hmm. or access mm -hmm. to medications or access to HIV treatment? Yeah. So what if I can fix your legal problem when that may be the least of your problems. Quickly respond to Please. that because I, I, I spoke to a, a group of justices and they said, what can we do? Because they're very concerned because the feeder group is the police over arresting, over charging, you know, for native people. And I said, why don't you change how you sentence people? And not just, you know, the glad to consider options other than prison, because that's not working either. But why don't you sentence someone to having an education? and direct that it be paid for by the province because it, that's the actual root cause. The culprit of what's manifested as a crime is not in fact that individual, but it's someone else. And so they have a responsibility to do the education because there was one justice who actually sentenced someone to have reconstructive surgery because they had a cleft palate and she had um, reacted and resisted and acted out so much because she was always harassed about her appearance. So he sentenced that was the, the judgment that you must have this corrective surgery and it will be paid and 
you know, it addressed a root cause. So we could be addressing all these root causes and judges have, they can forge, they can change the law. I know not everyone's really um, a fan of that, but they can. They're the common law makers. Well, and it goes into this issue of law versus government and common law versus written law. So Sarah, as somebody who's transitioning into politics, who ran the mayoral campaign, who is now seeking a federal seat, what do you see in the role of government as in the rule of law? Well, I'm really inspired by the city Congress with some of the amazing women, like Anne Omar and Rashida Kuli, who's um, an amazing work. And then maybe Shulkant, who's being knocked out of the house. I see, uh, I think you really, there is room in um, in the federal arena or in politics to be to bring revolutionary politics and radical politics. And that's what I've done. Our team has done our best to do last year through the municipal and then again here federally. So we need to imagine a completely different way of doing justice and doing politics. And, um, and so I think in my experience with activism in Toronto for a long time, there's always been um, kind of one eyebrow raised at the whole idea of running. I don't know if that's still the case, um, but I think that is changing because of what's happening in the US. But so with our my campaign, you know, we're calling for things like prison abolition and abolishing, you know, CAS and ending, you know, mandatory minimums and free tuition and free transit um, last year. And so, you know, and, and I think a lot of those ideas have become more normalized. Um, whereas in the beginning, a lot of people said, even on television, oh, that's a crazy idea. Free transit is a dream. It's never going to happen. And then only to come to see Edmonton and. Victoria and um, British Columbia have both passed motion that their city council for free transit. So I definitely think there's room. Um, I know some activists uh, have told me like there's no room for electoral politics in the movement or in activism. But I um, I would disagree. I think that um, I see the federal seat as just a wing of the movement, a parliamentary wing uh, of the social movements that we have in our country. And I think we should take hijacked and in the country, whether it's done through a political party, whether it's done independent, whether it's done um, through a more marginal political party, because they're, at the end of the day, the seats have to go somewhere, and I would rather go to uh, one of us if we're going to push for radical change and stick to that agenda, then I I absolutely think we, we should do it. And I mean, there's no better example than seeing how the right like, I would say, Doug Ford, for all of his faults, the, the Conservatives do are really good organizers. I saw Doug Ford 16 times in some of my, the neighborhoods where I have part of my base, in Tomacole and Western Road. That's just reality. And so I think it's time that the left, really, that we start to own our own, realize that we're actually really amazing organizers, too. And I've seen tremendous things done in Ontario in, in the past. Thank you so much for everyone's words. Thank you so much about 
I just like to ask maybe if people can share their thoughts about, especially in the context of legal healthcare cuts, what some words for legal clinics and for joining activism with legal strategy, uh, not just to fight the cuts, but just in general, how the clinics could work better as activist spaces, the role of the clinics in this, just some thoughts on that movement based on Thanks. I, I advocate heavily for militancy, like I was saying, in direct action. And I think some of um, practically kind of does do some of that, but that's one of my recommendations is we need to, I think as a population, in light of what's happening under for the administration, we as populists need to become ungovernable. And uh, that should be part of our thought process. And so for clinics, I think clinics do great work. Uh, you know, I support that work. But I do think that, um, yeah, I think the writing is on the wall with, um, with you know, what we've seen, like 100% cut to legal aid for earmarked immigrants and refugees. I think we need to, I, I, I want to see more than just Typical protest. I want to see. I want to see novelty. I want to see a lot more sort of new ways of organizing, and I want to see like what like some of our campaign inmates are a part of our organizing. So they act as consultants. They provide expertise on criminal law claim. The same with a lot of uh, the bases, first-time voters, new Canadians, people who've been here for as little as three weeks, undocumented people. I want to see that come into the clinic system and to come into the organizing to to give it more life. Uh, just quickly, I, I wanted to actually acknowledge that the majority of people that I know that work at clinics, they're an activist by working at those clinics. You know, being underpaid and overworked and choosing to not have a giant salary, but actually work for the people who need it the most. And, and sometimes you're working so much that you don't truly ever get compensated. And, and that includes, you know, for the typical legal aid clinic, but for, um, you know, law school clinics that do this for residential tenancy or other clinics that do this for rape uh, victims. And um, that is a form of act, activism in and of itself. And I think that that's really, really important. And I think the most important thing anyone could do working at a clinic is despite the really onerous conditions of any clinic is to do represent each client as if they were your child. So that you know, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that despite the onerous conditions, you know, your clients live under much worse conditions but they will have had the best representation humanly possible in that circumstance so that we avoid all of the, the native kids going to corrections and all of the you know, native people just going through the mill of just plead guilty, just plead guilty, just plead guilty. Because there, there is that still that problem in some clinics, but the majority I see are just trying to find new and innovative ways to be, to represent each one as if it's your own child. Because that, that makes a huge difference when you see them as humans and know that no matter how tough it is at a clinic or for a volunteer, it's a lot worse for the people that are coming before you. Just um, legally, generally, even before the Ford cuts, Dicey says the rule of law, the second tenet, is that we're all equal before the law. What do we do when it comes to the criminal law and legal aid without a public defender system? And I don't want to get into a huge debate with practitioners about that. Is we say that if you can afford a lawyer, you're entitled to have a lawyer defend you. If you make under $13,000 and are single, live in Toronto. And the most recent part was, and if there is a substantial likelihood you're going to go to jail, mm -hmm. we'll give you a legal aid certificate. Never mind that a criminal record for a young person is going to destroy their future. So that if you don't fit into one of those two categories, what do you do? You defend yourself. Now, does that not make it clear that Dicey's formulation and the formulation that's been around since about 1300 and evolved over the years. It, it's a hoax. 
And we've got to stop falling for it, and we've got to stop letting our friends and neighbors fall for it as well. Uh, I was wondering if you could say something about using uh, tort law to get compensation that could be used for organizing uh, uh, events. Uh, I'm sort of thinking of Ralph Bader, who seems to be do this very well. Uh, and uh, he certainly doesn't win every case, but he wins huge settlements uh, that he uses for his public citizen work. Uh, I'm particularly involved in, a, in an issue here in Ontario where Google Muscat convinced the Ontario government to uh, uh, pass a section, a new section of, of the RHPA, which, if obeyed, would, would end the suffering of patients on waiting lists across Ontario. Problem is, that the government doesn't want to enforce it. And the body that is supposed to be um, doing it, the CPSO, uh, won't obey it. Uh, um, so, on, on this short law piece, I use that model where we use um, the business side of the firm generating settlements that then subsidize some of the political work. But the issue with the tort and civil litigation is just that it's so expensive. And that's what I keep talking about with um, getting big money out of the justice system, is how do we overcome that battle, like just out the gates. I've seen such great, great cases, um, fatality cases, where the budget isn't there. So I think the, the question that we have to ask as a movement is how can we overcome that battle? How can we, how can we have a legal defense fund like in the U.S.? They have great legal defense funds with NAACP and the American Civil Liberties Association, but here in Ontario, we, we don't really have that right now. Um, but I um, but I do see a path, I just, I just have a, a vision in terms of like going forward in terms of how we can use civil courts um, in the way that you mentioned, but it just keeps coming back to the, the currency piece. You can just note on for a while, I want to go to the next and maybe last question is, even just to get in the door, so just to file a statement of claim is almost $300 now. $300 just to ask to get in the door. And how on earth did that So as they say, that's that about that. I guess nobody really says that, but I just said it, so it's now been said. Thank you for listening. And I hope you come back again for another edition of the Jured podcast. And if you're interested in radio or talking or both or neither really, or you're just tired of hearing my voice every time, please get involved. We're looking for producers oh, and hopefully some recording space so we don't hear garbage bins being picked up in the background as is happening right now. Well, I've told you already, you can subscribe by looking up Jared anywhere, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever. Give us a rating. More people can find us. Share the podcast, etc., etc. so on, so on. And we look forward to hearing from you. Foundation at gmail.com. Yeah, that's about that. We very much appreciate your listening minutes. Bye now.